Welcome everybody to the 33rd episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together and discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is the market. And as guest, we have Patrick Nevelin. And uh, Alan, would you please introduce Patrick for us? Certainly, Patrick works in social anthropology, global history, and critical political economy. Um, he's recently been working on, uh, or he's published quite extensively on the recent 200 years of capitalism, um, and especially on uh, special economic zones. He's affiliated with University of Bergen and University of Bern. So hello, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi, Alan. Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for having me. I've uh, enjoyed lots of your episodes to keep me sane during the peak of the lockdown. So I look forward to talking to you today. Well, if you're relying on us to help keep you sane, then all I can say is may God help us all. <laughs> Patrick, the key term that we uh, have selected today, we were just wondering whether it should be market, markets, um, but you said that the best term would be the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why and, and how should we begin to think about the market? I think it's important to distinguish the three approaches here. If we talk about markets, we talk about plurality of markets, both in the present, across the globe, across various different humans' interactions, but also across time and space so we would then distinguish markets in different periods of uh, human history different modes of productions guiding the organization of markets and if we talk about the market um, then we come very close to this fetishized notion of the market as a guiding principle of all human interactions in capitalism I think that's the first fundamental distinction we should make also in terms of considering what is the market we talk about today and how is our perception of histories of markets shaped by the contemporary ideological and superstructural production of our understanding of the market. Does that mean that we should use the term capitalism and the market interchangeably? No, that doesn't mean that we use them interchangeably, but we uh, use the concept of the market also in terms of Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand of the market as the guiding principle of the rational, utilitarian, maximizing capacities of capitalism as an organizational principle for human societies. And this is fundamental for our understanding of capitalism in the present because it always comes with a range of chimera that are substitutes for the actual fact that we are living in a capitalist world system with different iterations. So, for example, if we would look at Fernand Braudel's French historian of the early 20th century analyst school work on the history of markets, then he demarcates a clear distinction between earlier markets, which obviously have some kind of guiding organizational principles, but also have a kind of 
fundamentally different organizational principle from everyday life and uh, the reproductional capacities of that life. And later markets that are actually what he terms anti-markets under capitalism which means that capitalism organizes human exchange in such a way that it always benefits a few and, to put it bluntly, rips off a lot of other people. So, following up on that, kind of maybe, maybe to mapping out this kind of a historical view of, uh, of the market first, uh, to me it's always interesting how, and you already mentioned the world, how the ideological apparatus of the market works. The kind of more historical idea that at least we always tell ourselves uh, when we used to be in the business school is that there used to be a time when a market was a sort of distinct sphere of sociality, that you had another kind of life and then you might go to the market square once a week or this kind of romantic historical notion. And then through various developments historically in capitalism and also global developments in capitalism, the ideology through uh, that we nowadays, I guess, call neoliberal, has increasingly emerged into something that now is no longer a distinct sphere of life, but, it, but it's life itself. Um, is this kind of a short kind of understanding of history and how it developed through the work of Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Institute and so on, is this something of how we could approach uh, neoliberal capitalism or just global capitalism today? Yes, this is of course a very important way to approach this and um, if we look at the historical production of critiques of capitalism in the social sciences, we find a lot of suggestions for decades, periods, crisis moments in the history of capitalism when this transition happened or when this transformation happened from earlier to contemporary markets. The first possibly most fundamental suggestion here is Karl Polanyi's work in The Great Transformation where he distinguishes between a society where the market is embedded into all kinds of other social relations, kinship, family, ritual, uh, politics, whatnot, and then argues that uh, there's a great tra transformation in world history in the mid-19th century when markets start and market principles start to take over all these other spheres of human interaction so that after the great transformation, our life, our family relations, our kinship, our structures, our understanding of politics are guided by the principles of the market, so that there's an embedding and a disembedding. We have uh, later understandings of similar processes, for example, David Harvey's and others' notion that the 1970s were this decade of rupture, when we have a transition to neoliberal capitalism and an earlier possibly better, more just and more equality-oriented phase of Fordism and Keynesianism en ended, where again there's this understanding that Keynesian uh, fiscal policies, uh, international relations were much more driven by an ambition to 
make them more humane to have like a humane face for capitalism. If we look at it from a different angle, we should say that this kind of embeddedness and disembeddedness of markets is there both in pre-capitalist and capitalist markets because when you go to, let's say, a continental European city, the old town of Bern, for example, you see that there are still market meters on display where the particular measurements for clothes, for wood or so on were defined, where you have like a particular location where there was even some kind of judge who would rule over disputed transactions on the market and so forth. So in this sense, we can then say that the opposite is true, that all markets are always embedded in human relations and it depends much more on a much larger setting of those relations how the market then functions in a given society and that brings us back to this earlier question about the relationship between markets and capitalism because from a more historical materialist perspective the emergence of capitalism is much less barbarian much more complex, much more embedded in a set of violent interactions, dispossessions, initial or original accumulations, like those um, famous man-eating sheep in Thomas Moore's Utopia that uh, evicts the British peasants, dependent peasants from their lands and turn them into this kind of floating surplus population for the early accumulation of mercantile capitalism. So to bring this also back to one of your earlier episodes, I remember Alan and you discussing the role of shopping in times of the pandemic and Alan uh, mentioning the question of uh, whether this kind of very focused, very concentrated supermarket trips of the pandemic mean a return to an earlier 1970s, 1980s approach of capitalist households to shopping where there's like big one big family shopping trip instead of a few smaller ones where every now and then you buy like a loaf of bread or some milk and you just hunt the supermarkets for bargains. I think it's very interesting to look at markets or the market in the time of the pandemic because it's this bifurcating moment that reminds us of the role of markets in our society. And I think it's also very interesting how it demarcates the fact that the market is still separate from our everyday existence, that not all our interactions are market-driven. And I think that's important to keep in mind also if we want to look at the possibility of a world beyond capitalism. I'd like to make uh, just a very pedantic point, uh, which is the term marketplace, whenever I hear it, it always irritates me because further to your point that markets are always embedded, it just seems completely superfluous to put the word place at the end of market. To, to my ears, marketplace means exactly the same thing as, as market, but, but that's kind of a hobby horse. So I wonder, first of all, do you agree with that? But this is kind of a silly intervention I'm making. Uh, but the second thing I wanted to ask you is, can you explain uh, what Marxists mean when they say that they want to denaturalize the market? 
let me go back to the first part of your question first, please. Um, I think that's very important and that's going very much to the heart of the matter, that the market is not a kind of ontological disposition as it is in a way in Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market, but that it is rather a grounded, localized transaction, no matter whether it happens on a particular website that also is a place and the terms that is defined by a particular URL that then needs to be bought and fed with whatever kind of programming you need to have an online market or people would say marketplace in a wrong way. So this is very important to keep in mind that markets are locations and not human conditions or worldviews or something like that. And the second point, the denaturalization of the market, I think in this sense it's very important to go back to Marx's early critique of the so-called primitive accumulation and the science of political economy in the 19th century, which back then was like the crown of the social sciences and was an important sphere of political advisory functions of scientists where he distinguishes two types of fictions of the emergence of capitalism. On the one hand, the Robinson Yards, where you have a lone human on an island, in a way, with reference to Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, who is this kind of inherent, organically utilitarian individual who builds a world along the principles that we would later call capitalism. This is, for example, today reflected in all these online computer or mobile phone games, civilization, or where, where you build like your own kind of society and world from scratch and you move through particular stages of human history and it's always organized in a way that has this utilitarian maximizing principle as the key to the games or to the game player's success. And then a second dimension, which is the idea of an initial accumulation of capital because some humans are lazy and others are industrious and they save money and over time then they come to own the means of production. So. This is more this Biberian idea of a Protestant ethics where some people are the deserving capitalists and other people are the undeserving proletarians because they made some mistakes a couple of generations ago or so. And I think this is fundamental also then to how we can denaturalize capitalism when we unmask the kind of continued production of these mythologies in contemporary societies. Uh, Patrick, with that approach to the market or the marketplace in this case, uh, you can still sort of talk about the market as a location that is indeed somehow separate from maybe, let's say, human imaginations. But then again, wouldn't it still be worth also to look at the things from a more sinister perspective, perhaps, again, from ideology? So when you think of people who are now nowadays completely invested in ideas such as, for example, personal branding, 
or all their friends are simply seen as networking opportunities or you know when their presence is online and their entire business models for example if they stream on twitch or what have you is how much attention and views they get so in a sense this kind of market reduced uh, to this sphere of the social entirely i in certain continental traditions uh, philosophical traditions this was called capitalized subjectivity so would it be any use also to focus on this fully ideological mode too Yes, definitely, because this is a core arena where the naturalization of capitalism takes place. If we think about, let's take the old folk song, for he's a jolly good fellow, and so say all of us. Yeah, That's a kind of affirmation of a given individual's reputation in a given social setting. And you could translate this today as a kind of appropriation or incorporation of these basic human foundations of society into neoliberal late modern capitalism where, for example, the number of followers you have, the number of people you know on a given social media platform says something about your position in society or you at least imagine that it would do it says something about your trustworthiness. It says something about your kind of capacity to interact with other humans. I think that's also why we are then confronted with these constant waves of concerns, for example, about Russian or Chinese or Steve Bannon's or Cambridge Analytica's interference uh, in social media networks because it shows very much the kind of outsourcing principles that we have uh, awarded to particular iterations of neoliberal capitalism in terms of the social relations that we have. And by this I'm not necessarily... Although also it's quite important if, if we think like in England, for example, the Christmas number one is always a very important and also charity-driven kind of ritual moment in the annual cycle of society. And I think in the last two years, it was always this kind of uh, YouTuber, social media couple who um, then had like a charity single. They are apparently living their lives, earning money from their YouTube account. Quite a kind of ordinary northern english family and they then had a charity single for the food banks where they took this old kind of starship 1980s hit and turned it into we built this city on sausage rolls or so you know and i think that's a very remarkable moment where we not only take this kind of sinister parts of uh, human relationality into the sphere of neoliberal capitalism, but we actually also put the less sinister parts of charity and uh, free gifts into this realm of uh, this kind of outsourced human relationality. Uh, one thing that I was going to add, but then, then Alan was more quick, was that I haven't personally read too much of Hayek or any of these people who are associated with the Montpellier Institute and uh, what we nowadays call the emergence of, I guess you could call it the neoliberal condition 
or neoliberal tendency. But would it be still okay to say that if we talk about Hayek, he had really good intentions, apparently. So his idea of free markets was almost like, as Alex, Alex Andrews called it, this kind of free hippie stuff, because what he is reacting to really is against fascism, stemming all the way from the Second World War. Is that at all correct? I must confess that I'm no expert on Hayek. Um, there's a lot of really smart, brilliant colleagues out there, Philip Mirovsky, Quinn Slobodian recently, who look at the intellectual histories of neoliberalism and neoliberal thought. My work is much more on the actual practice or praxis of neoliberalism in special economic zones, in global factories, in garment supply chains and so forth. So answering your question from the angle of praxis, um, we should maybe also consider that Hayek obviously was a refugee from fascism and was opposed to fascism, but um, that also his kind of principles, for example, articulated in his book on the road to serfdom in 1944, important year 1944, because it's also the year when this book that I mentioned earlier from Karl Polanyi on the Great Transformation um, came out. These principles are articulated at a moment, at least in this book, 1944, when it's actually very clear that fascism is going to lose globally and when it's about building a new world, a new world order, as George W. Bush would have said it. So when we also have the Bretton Woods Conference that later then gives birth to the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and so on, and when we have a fierce debate between Keynesians and neoliberals about the organization, for example, of an international trade treaties and so forth, and in this regard, equating all kind of planned economies, as Hayek does, with a road to serfdom and a reiteration of this primacy of the free hand of the market, as Adam Smith wanted it, is uh, something that's possibly still an anti-fascist uh, line to take. Um, but it's also a line that really leads us towards global economy in which uh, there is a very, very strong social Darwinist approach to the survival of the fittest because, as I've said before, once we consider capitalism as an anti-market where it's about having particular sets of legal regulations, state infrastructure and so forth that uh, privilege some people over others, then a free market is a kind of consolidation of these inequalities and a continuation of these inequalities for a very long time. And uh, this also is very visible in the organization of the Mont Pelerin society, which in some ways some people have said is built a bit on these kind of early internationals uh, that clandestinely met in Swiss mountain villages and so on. But obviously Mont Pelerin, where they founded this society in 1947, is a very different setting than the kind of 
small peasant villages where Lenin and Trotsky conspired uh, towards the Russian Revolution. So these people meet from a very, very privileged, wealthy background. Um, they are very happy to co-align their ideas about a future global political economy with right-wing McCarthyan uh, forces, for example, in the United States, or as Quinn Slobodian in his book on the globalist shows, also with apartheid South Africa. We have the very famous idea of the Chicago, or not, it's actually not an idea, but the reality of the Chicago boys who built uh, Pinochet's Shibe and so forth. So maybe to bring it full circle, I, I agree with you that there's a hippie-ish idea in Hayek, but it should maybe rather lead us to question the hippies than to attribute positives to Hayek. Yeah, for sure. I think the concept of the anti-market is really interesting here as well. I'm reminded of, I think it was Alex Williams who gave a rather impassioned speech about what the actual, what markets actually look like these days. And he was here kind of creating a juxtaposition between the idea of the ideological idea of what you hear all the time. So market is free and then that should be somehow good for everybody. But of course, when he is now looking at the situation, he, his view was rather that, you know, you go to your local grocery store and it's what it's like 10 companies or maybe seven that do 99% of the products that you can buy from your local store. So obviously what we are not seeing uh, in any market actuality is anything like a free market. Instead, we're seeing massive consolidation of l large companies because, of course, the market is organized through financialization and the stock market. And the only way any company would have any stake in, in any way optimizing or manipulating its future stock value would be to be so large that they can actually make a difference in the market. So is this something that, you know, the anti-market has been developing towards while at the same time somehow being able to maintain a narrative of freedom still. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I think this juxtaposition or this binary is very important also from a kind of structuralist rather than a post-structuralist critique of contemporary capitalism um, that we keep in mind that obviously this idea of an end or this kind of counter ideological term of an anti-market brings us very close to series of monopoly capitalism, financialization, and so forth. And if we think about the 10 types of bread or so that we find in the supermarket from three different companies, if we follow that further down the chain, we find like particular concentrations, particular, as some people have called it, choke points, um, or Immanuel Wallerstein called it the bottlenecks in commodity chains. So you might have, for example, I don't know, 600,000 grain farmers or so in the UK who produce the grain that then kind of ends up in these kind of three companies producing these 10, 10 different types of fairly poor British uh, bread. But when you look then how many intermediaries are involved in the kind of exchange 
relations or in the commodity chain from the grain farmer to the corner shop or the supermarket, then you see that this really narrows down, for example, in the middle when you look at the millers, yeah, when you look at the grain mills, and I think there's three or five grain mills in the UK at the moment. The same would be true for the global garment and textile market, something that has been very hotly debated during the pandemic also because Western high street companies or retailers withdrew orders from garment workers in Bangladesh and thereby really threatened their livelihoods or because uh, sweatshops in Leicester in the UK were discovered where we suddenly then have uh, hotspots of COVID-19 infection. Again, if we look at the kind of intermediaries in the commodity chain for textiles and garments, we find that particular consortia, like for example the Hong Kong-based uh, company Li and Fung, handle around 80% of the global orders in garments. So I think here in order to understand the anti-market concept, uh, or to expand on it and to also bring it in line with this dichotomy of good and bad, um, it's very important to look at the chain of relations and economic transactions that we encounter when we go to a given market. So the kind of commodity histories and commodity biographies that we find in the shop and that in a way, of course, put us in social relations with people across the globe. But all these social relations are hidden from us and there's a huge industry involved in uh, trying to kind of keep these social relations hidden from us. So this is very, very important to consider. Speaking of how markets are reacting in the current situation, the global pandemic, uh, especially, of course, the American narrative where we have a president that equates and it's not necessarily only the American co context at all, where it's sort of still equated that if the stock market is doing well, it's a sort of proxy that everybody should be doing well at the same time. I guess we can also extend this to the idea of the gross national product still being used very often as a sort of an indicator for actual street level, you know, well-being, even though this might be somewhat problematic. That on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm really puzzled, maybe it just shows how little I know about this, but I'm really puzzled, how can it be that the stock markets are doing relatively well, at least according to the narrative? Is this a, only a sign of sort of a delusional future expectations of investors, or does it reveal an even deeper disconnect between a largely abstracted and future-oriented speculation versus an any kind of a market actuality or real actuality of social relations and material conditions that we could imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that brings it uh, very much to the heart of the matter. I think, um, let me start with the kind of gross domestic product or gross national product in the UK and I think maybe elsewhere there's now this idea that we will have this V-shaped recovery. I don't know if it's also similar in Finland that you have this kind of extreme dip in GDP and then you have a rapid rise again. But obviously this very much links to the war metaphor that has been used for the pandemic also 
in regard to frontline workers and their disposability, but also in regard to this whole idea that, for example, someone like Boris Johnson wants to present himself as if he was the new Winston Churchill. So, and Winston Churchill is obviously very famous for this two-finger victories sign. So we can't have a U-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery, but we need to have a V-shaped recovery because that then marks the victory over the economic crisis caused by the pandemic. And that brings us to the bigger picture, which is that also if we talk about not only pandemics, but also natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, and so forth, They are only a disaster in um, mass opinion as long as they create a significant threat for capitalist accumulation. And in this sense, we then need to also look at the kind of not only disposability of workers, but also at the disposability of small and medium enterprises. Because the companies that we see traded on the stock market, on the NASDAQ, on the FTSE 100 or so, those are not uh, the corner shops or the carpenters or the plumbers, but those are obviously then the 50, 100, maybe 250 largest stock market trading corporations um, in a particular country or even globally. So, the idea that the stock markets are doing well and that then the economy or we are doing well means that only really the large kind of corporate agglomerations of capital are doing well. In Germany, for example, there's something called the MDAX, which is like the kind of medium-sized enterprises that are stock market traded and they have their own stock market index but no one will ever on the evening news talk about like the fluctuations in that kind of stock market index people will always only look at the lead index where big corporations like BW, like the main car manufacturers or so on are traded so this is also really important consider when we have this kind of pandemic that the, the kind of policies also of the herd immunity that Johnson or Trump or others were fronting early on in the pandemic that obviously very much points to the kind of question who is disposable at the moment and for for what purpose do we have to be disposed of yeah I, I suppose we mentioned this in a previous podcast as well, but from this Nordic angle, from Finland, looking looking at, for example, what's going on in the States, or I could say probably even UK as well, but the idea, of course, that comes to us now in stark relief is exactly what you already alluded to. Is the economy for the people or are indeed the people for the economy? And it's not long ago when we had, I think it was the lieutenant governor of Texas, who literally went on the news to tell that now old people are supposed to sacrifice themselves for the economy. And I guess this sort of brings me full circle back to my original question. I would personally argue that on pretty good faith that that is a sign either of somebody who is trying to very cynically use people for their own gains, or perhaps we are rather exactly seeing what I called before a capitalized subjectivity, who literally 
is libidinally invested in the market to the point where self-sacrifice to the market becomes uh, even an enjoyably relevant option. Is this something that how sort of markets also can reveal themselves as these kind of very libidinally powerful motivators, if you will, for people? Is there a sacrificial death drive logic that you can see? Yes, definitely, and I think it it uh, it is actually a very strong kind of indicator for this kind of persistent kind of um, obsessive, godlike imagination of this invisible hand of the market. So, whereas in other war-style crisis situations, you have other ideas of martyrdom, like uh, going to heaven, and when you I don't know, turn yourself into a human bomb or something like that, then uh, in this kind of pandemic, which uh, very much also brings to the front the kind of whole question of uh, population diversity, age groups, vulnerability to viruses, that then people go out and are seemingly happy to sacrifice themselves for the continued benefit of the gross domestic product rate or some stock market exchange rates, it goes to show that um, we have this kind of idea and maybe that's also something that defines most likely or certainly not my or your identity, but people traveling across the world with a kind of particular understanding that their nation is a top 10 GDP player in the global economy, tourism in a way, the availability of global mobility and how this is linked to what the Sex Pistols in their famous song called a cheap holiday and other people's misery, yeah? So the kind of exchange rate of your own national currency in which your wages are paid towards other exchange rates, that has also come to define our lives and our kind of at least uh, longer distance exchange relations. And in this sense, then, having this idea that humans need to be disposable, age groups need to be sacrificing themselves, that obviously leads us to very kind of obscene underlayer of uh, human desire in our relationships with the market and all its manifestations and articulations. I find it super interesting that you almost kind of, you almost alluded to what I was just going to ask. So obviously we now realize that at least on this global level, when we get into a situation, let's imagine if uh, COVID-19 would be a lot worse in anything that could be equated to say the bubonic plague or something an existential threat to human human life I immediately. And of course, one thing that then you do see, obviously, is that nationalism or uh, global capitalism are not good ways of organizing to combat these kind of situations. In fact, they seem to be quite the opposite, not only globally, but also the countries that are doing the worst, uh, at least in the West, so to speak, uh, in terms of their uh, COVID response seem to be uh, countries that are most invested in what, again, we could call something like a neoliberal world order. So we already mentioned that, yes, in these countries uh, in particular, but many others too, these kind of ideas like 
how well is our country doing economically, the stock exchange. They might be still used very often as a readily citable proxy for how well everybody is doing, even though I think things like the plausibility of ideas such as the trickle-down economics should probably have long been discarded. Is it indeed, like you say, is it is a better way to understand this kind of narrative that it is an equivalent of a national sport event or something like that? And if so, uh, what kind of a view of the market should we take that it would correspond more to maybe something that we would imagine that would actually have a correspondence with the lives of people? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I very much agree. And I think it's... Um Possibly the actions of the United States government here are really good guidance to look at what's happening there. So that on the one hand, we have this kind of option or the kind of demand for sacrifices. And on the other hand, we have Trump going in very, very strong, really a bit like a nuclear bomb approach to say, oh, once there's like a German company that has a vaccine against the virus, I will just buy this company and then the vaccine will only be for the US population. Or that they buy up the global stock of particular pharmaceuticals that are possibly useful for kind of uh, limiting the effects of COVID-19. We see the same thing in this kind of global bidding war about personal protective equipment where we see that there's also an immediate link between a very kind of technocratic solution in overcoming the pandemic by either PPE or pharmaceuticals. And on the other hand, the need obviously for a given nation to have this purchasing power in order to obtain all these pharmaceuticals and PPEs for their particular population. So what you see here also is Trump over a longer period of time kind of calling the American people to kind of ditch the PPE because that was something that was maybe not achievable or also not affordable, but at the same time constantly promising them a kind of outside cure for the human body that you can consume, whether this is now bleach or some kind of malaria drug or now something possibly more realistic like a vaccine or remdesivir, like something that takes the edge of COVID, that kind of links these two ideas about like what is actually your bargaining or your power position in the market and what can you do with that? So what do you take home when you leave the market and you've kind of bought something on the market? And in this sense, then the question is, yeah, what would be a better market? Would it be something where we just kind of take a certain percentage of the goods and capital that's floating around in a given economy and is distributed evenly as a universal basic income across consumers and their households and then trust in the fact that these people will be able to make the kind of original, rational choice uh, actions that are so fundamental to capitalism? Or would it be that we actually kind of corner a significant part of the market, not in the sense that we make a profit from it, but that we actually take that out of this kind of free circulation 
of commodities, money, private property, and make it available as a kind of global commons to everyone. And this obviously leads us to the very, very tricky question of what do we do with private property if we want to decrease the global effects of inequality. So when the global pandemic started, uh, I remember there were a lot of uh, narratives of how this might actually lead us to some form of post-capitalist market relations or to do away with the market as we understand it completely. A new political possibility, a new possibility for, you know, envisioning sustainable forms of living and uh, to also anticipate climate change and the ecological disaster thereof. So, and it feels to me that these sort of grand expectations have now been kind of diluted. Uh, people are just getting used to this new form of being more or less, of course, with different emphasis in very different emphasis in different countries. Um, in terms of markets, what do you think, understand very speculatively, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, of course, we don't know exactly how bad the second wave, the potential second wave may be and so on. But especially from the perspective, I think it's very interesting that there was even a strong idea that this is the change we need if we, if we really want, want to have a change. And then this kind of parallels the idea that actually the stock markets are fine, apparently, and so on. So is it just a slow return to the normal that we already know is not going to be normal for eternity? Or are there some opportunities of change that you can see? Yeah, I, I see various opportunities for change, but um, not a single one that looks particularly good to me or particularly promising and enchanting. I think we have like a recurring feature in the last two, three decades where there's this idea that we just need one cathartic event that will us kind of all assume a more reasoned position, whatever kind of reason that is, whether it is some kind of more close to nature idea or a more equality driven idea we need this one cathartic event or we need this one cathartic technology that will then sort it out for us you know like in a way i feel that this pandemic looks a bit like what was this idea 10 years ago that the internet 2 or 30 would sort it all out for us and now we have airbnb uber and so forth and what started off as a fiction of a sharing economy has turned into a even worse capitalist nightmare than we had before so i think the pandemic if we look now how markets globally operate and also once we are able to look at least partly behind the curtain of the operations of markets while we all were in lockdown and we find out, for example, what has happened in sweatshops in Leicester, what has happened to migrant workers in India, what has happened to garment workers in Bangladesh during the pandemic, then we realize that while we sat in our safe European middle-class homes and felt suddenly very attached to our neighbors, were driven by like fearful emotions about the end of the world, 
other people were dying and uh, had no option but to kind of become these frontline workers or stay these frontline workers that were kind of uh, thrown towards this kind of uh, global mino tower that we call kind of supply chain capitalism. Sorry, that wasn't very upbeat comment. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> no, no, that's that's fine. Uh, we uh, our 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 show tends to always descend to the not so upbeat. But you know, speaking of this, uh, I have one more question, and it's sort of a dystopian science fiction question. But I I can't help. I I I'd still like to ask it. So of course, one of my theoretical homes it has been uh, Deleuze and Guattari and the post-structural French tradition. This is also why I'm so interested in talking about desire all the time. Mm -hmm. But of course, in their speculative, super speculative, even sort of theory fictional account of capitalist history, Deleuze and Guattari say that all the previous forms of human organizing sort of anticipated capitalism. All of the previous forms somehow were able to kind of bottle up this liberation of desire. It's only capitalism that really unleashed this greed and desire and this accumulation for more and more and more. So in previous forms, you know, you, you had usury laws, or for example, that usury was, was illegal and you were not allowed to make money on money. So financialization is literally the outcome of this um, accelerating and ever escalating, you know, becoming of capitalist desire, if you will, in their account. So my question, uh, with that background, my question is uh, back to the sort of stock markets. Um, so in a previous episode, I called the stock market Skynet from the Terminator franchise mm -hmm. because um, it's interesting how if you look at, uh, I saw some figures and it's like only a few percentage of the stock market trades are actually made by people clicking a mouse or making a decision as a, as a sort of a, an idea of a human agent these days. So my, my question then becomes, what would happen indeed when we arrive at a complete autonomous global stock exchange? Is it a, is it a becoming of a new faith that we, we will witness? Or what might that situation look like? Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if, if we look at this very, very poignant observation from Deleuze and Gattari that you just put forward that all these kind of human pre-capitalist modes of production or periods kind of point towards capitalism in a way that's obviously also a very Marxist approach to human history where where, the, where there's a certain logic of, of uh, development of contradictions and social forces or norms, values, rationalities, irrationalities that uh, give the present a kind of meaningfulness in the long and big picture. It's in a way maybe a kind of um, more joyful but still quite hopeless variation on Walter Benjamin's uh, picture of or interpretation of Paul Klee's Angel of History, you know, where you have this angel who is blown towards the future by um, the wind of uh, history, but his face is towards the past and he sees like all these kind of uh, ruins of human disasters pile up. So when we look at the future in the present, we are always these kind of at least as leftists, I suppose we are always these kind of 
creatures, these kind of um, iterations of that angel of history that sees uh, the future through the kind of image in the rearview mirror of human history. And I would think, yeah, of course, we need to be very worried about the fact that we have a fully detached stock market. Um, on the other hand, um, do you remember this movie that Spike Lee did? Was it called The 25th Hour or so? Oh, I, I'm not aware of that, unfortunately. Okay, it, it, it's about stock, uh, a, a guy who kind of needs to go to jail and he has like a kind of a final moment before he goes to jail with his best friends and one of his friends is this kind of stock market trader who kind of um, is very kind of heavy on drugs and uh, sits in this kind of trading office in New York and only kind of downs like one Red Bull after the other and his only kind of gamble on that day or in that week where he's actually worked very little has been that the unemployment figures will either go down or up when everyone else on the trading floor is, expects them to go the other way. So he basically kind of gambles his job on the fact that he goes against the market and then he can work very little in the week and uh, show up drunk for work and in the end he succeeds. Yeah? So everyone else is kind of really angry with him, but his boss is super happy and, of course, does the opposite of firing him. I think it's quite a good image of like this kind of idea that um, on the stock market there's this kind of rational or irrational humans clicking or making these deals and uh, that we are... Uh, if we are driven, or if the stock market is driven by these computer algorithms, um, that then it could get worse. Because at the end of the day, I mean, all these computer algorithms are still programmed by humans. Yeah? So when we talk today about like the kind of dangers of the fourth or fifth or whatever industrial revolution, we also need to remind ourselves that actually when the 1970s was about this third industrial revolution, when we all had this kind of post-industrial society that US, French, German, British philosophers talked about, at the end of the day, the commodities that enabled the post-industrial society are still produced in sweatshops, in uh, IT laptop factories in Shenzhen with three, four hundred thousand workers. Uh, so um, I want to conclude the answer to your question here with saying like, yeah, it might not get better, but it also can't get really worse. You know, I, I don't think the stock market driven only by uh, artificial intelligences would be worse than the current one. Thank you very much, Patrick. This has been really informative. Thank you very much, Patrick. I quite enjoyed the conversation. Mm -hmm.